Uh, as Andrew said, my name's Brian. I'm the pastor here at Mount Hope in Belmont. It's good to be with you. Encourage you, as Andrew said, to have those Bibles open at Genesis chapter 22. We're going to look at this text together. Uh, we're closing out a series here today on the faith of Abraham. And as we get to that, you know, I can only imagine, I can only imagine what must have been going through Abraham's mind as we get to this story that we're going to talk about today. In fact, I, I don't even know if I can fathom what he must have been thinking, what must have been happening, because Abraham, as we come into this story, is on day three of a journey. And it's a journey that is probably in his mind um, terrible and frightening and upsetting. And at the same time, the most God-fearing thing he could do. And I don't know what the tension must have felt like in Abraham's heart and his mind as he traveled about 50 miles over three days. But I can just imagine it building. There's only four people with him on the journey. Well, he was one of the four. It was Abraham. He took two young men with him on the journey just to help with everything that, that they needed for this trip. And then the only other person that was with him was his son. Isaac. And I'm sure for those three days, Abraham was playing over and over in his mind what God had asked him to do just a couple days earlier. We're not sure that the text doesn't tell us exactly how old Isaac is, but we know he's old enough to make this trip. We know he's old enough to carry his own supplies, as we'll see in the text. So, so by this point, Abram's, Abraham's son, Isaac, is a, is a young man. He's good for the three-day journey. He can help out. He can be one of the four. He can get his part done. But what we do know is that for 25 years, Abraham had been waiting for Isaac to be born. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, then, then you can recount the journey with me. But if you're here for one of the first times, let me, let me just bring you up to speed quickly. Abraham was 75 years old when God first called him. And God said, Abraham, I want you to leave the land that you're so used to, the land where your father raised you, and I want you to go to a place where I'm going to show you. And so Abraham did it. He had never met God before. He had never heard from God before. There was no written text. This is about 1,800 years before Jesus will be on the earth. So there's no written text. There's no other way that Abraham would know God other than that God meets him and calls him. And Abraham goes. And he moves to the land and over and over again for 25 years, God promises Abraham and his wife, Sarah, that he's going to give them a son and that that son will be the start of a great nation. But you know how it goes. Abraham's 75 years old at the time. Sarah's 65 years old at the time. And then they have to wait 25 years. And God keeps saying, I'm going to do this. And they keep looking in the mirror and saying, there's no way God's going to do this. And Abraham's saying, I'm 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. 
I don't know if God knows how all of this works, but we're not having a child. And after 25 years of waiting, God does the impossible. They laughed at the idea, the text says, that God would give them a child. And then we saw last week, they laugh as their child is born. They weren't perfect along the way. Abraham and Sarah made some mistakes, but God did it. And now Isaac has grown up. He's a young man. And God comes to Abraham again. And in Genesis chapter 22, we hear God ask Abraham to do something. This is just a couple of days before the end of his three-day journey. I mean, something that's unthinkable. Something that's very odd to us. And this is what we read. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. I don't know if you're reading that text and you're, you're maybe reading it for one of the first times and you're, you're wondering to yourself, is God asking Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice to take the life of his son in order to worship and honor God? And the answer is, yes, that's exactly what God's asking of, of Abraham. This son that he's waited for for 25 years, the miraculous son. You know, in the 25, now 35 years or so that Abraham's been following God, he's learned one thing. If God tells you to do something, you do it. So we read in verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. He cut, wood, he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. I mean, this is a heart-wrenching scene, isn't it? I can imagine that three days journey feels like it takes a long time, but that Abraham was fine with that. And then he sees the mountain from the distance, Mount Moriah, it's called. And he says to the two young men, you guys stay here. I'm going to go with Isaac and we're going to go worship God. Abraham knows in his mind that he's the only one coming back. 
And even Isaac takes note here. He says, Dad, I, I see that we have wood for the fire, and I see that you're, you have the fire to start our offering with, and I, and I see that you have a knife, but, but we're missing the offering. And Abraham straps the wood to the back of Isaac and says, don't worry, God will provide. I mean, can you picture Isaac with the wood strapped to his back? And he begins this climb, carrying this wood up Mount Moriah. You know, I'm not going to lie. Andrew wanted me to tell you that Isaac carrying his own wood up Mount Moriah was the original Mariah Carey. But I didn't think that was appropriate. <laughs> I didn't think. I thought that cheapened the whole thing. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. But can you picture that moment? Isaac with the wood strapped to his back, no offering there, and Abraham just saying, God's going to provide. Here's my question. I don't know if you have this question either. Why does God do this? Why would God do this? Why does God test like this? In fact, in the very beginning of the chapter, in the very first, we see that God then tested Abraham. Why does God do this? Because uh, this is not the first time that we see God testing people. Abraham's story comes very early in the Bible, almost 2,000 years before Jesus is born. But already we see that God has a history and a pattern of testing people. Adam and Eve in the garden were tested. They could eat of every tree except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they failed the test. Why does God do that? And then their children, Cain and Abel, God tests them, if you know the story, and asks them to bring an offering to an altar. And the jealousy that ensues in the middle of that test leads to one brother killing another brother. Why does God bring about the test? And then there's Noah, where God asks him to build a giant boat when there is no rain, and he tests him in that way. And then, chronologically speaking, there's the story of a man named Job. And even though Job is in a different place in your Bible, by the timeline, of scripture, Job actually happens before Abraham. And if you're familiar with the story of Job, he's the wealthiest man in the, in the East. He's the, he's the Jeff Bezos, the Warren Buffett, fill in the blank of the world. And God takes it all away from him, including his family. He's being tested. Why? I mean, Abraham has moved. He's trusted God in all sorts of different situations in his life. Why is this one necessary? And I wonder if you in your life go through things where it feels like God is testing you. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel fair. The marriage is rocky. The relationship with the kids is tough. 
the job isn't happening, someone close to you passes away, and you just wonder why? Why? Why does God allow these things to happen? And sometimes, why does God even cause them to happen? I don't know if that's your question, but that's certainly one of my questions when I read this story. And I think there's two reasons that we see in this story that God allows testing to take place. And the first reason is this, that when God tests, faith is seen. When God tests, faith is seen. Look at what happens here in verse nine. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. See, when God tests, faith is seen. It's easy to say that you believe something, but action's very different, isn't it? Words are cheap, we might say. I don't know if you've ever been with somebody and you're at an art gallery or you're at a a baseball game or you're at a concert and someone does something amazing. There's this amazing piece of art or there's an amazing musician or someone makes an amazing play. And there's always that person in the group that looks at that and says something like, I could do that. I could do that. Like that, that picture there that's hanging on the, on, the, on the art gallery wall, this contemporary piece of art with a bunch of colors just splashed together. I could do that, right? And what's the first thing that goes through your head? Prove it. Prove that you can throw the football like that. Prove that you can hit a baseball like that. Prove that you can sing like that. Prove it. And that's exactly what happens in the test. There's a problem in our lives where God, when God's blessings become the object of our worship. And there's a real danger in, in Abraham's life here that this blessing of Isaac that God has given him would ultimately become the object of his worship. He's waited a hundred years to have a child. And there could be a moment where, where Abraham begins to worship the child more than he worships God. And this is the test. Who is it, Abraham? It's easy to say it's me. But who is it really? See, when God tests, faith is, is seen. It's, it's put into practice. And I think it's really important for us to, to recognize in this moment that there's a big te- difference between test and temptation. God will not tempt you to sin. But God might test your faith. God tests, the enemy tempts. 
See, a test is, is what your teacher might hand out to try and see if you've actually learned the things that you've said you learned. Temptation is when the smartest kid in the class is sitting next to you and you want to look at their answers. God tests and the way we pass the test is that we put our faith into action and we say, God, I'm going to leave the results in your hands as I'm walking through this situation. Temptation is when we, we are tempted to take matters into our own hands. Say, God, rather than trust you to take care of it, I'm going to figure this out and do it my way. God tests Abraham and his faith is put into action. And thousands of years later, the brother of Jesus, James, he writes a book in the New Testament. And in James chapter 2 and verse 20, we see that because Abraham put his faith into action, uh, that, that his faith is made right and true. James chapter 2, verse 20, this is what the author says. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And so when God tests, faith is seen as we trust God. And leave the results up to him. But you know, I still have a question here. God knows what's going to happen, right? I mean, God knows everything that's going to happen. So he knows. He knows Eve is going to eat the fruit. He knows Job is going to stay faithful. He knows Noah's going to build the boat. He knows Abraham is going to sacrifice his son. So if God knows, why? Why? Because when God tests, not only is faith seen, but when God tests, God is seen. Here's what happens at the end of this story. We're in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This whole idea that Abraham would have to sacrifice his child to appease God. That is a terrible thought for us. That makes no sense. I don't even know that that's something any of us would consider. But here's what we have to remember when we come to these texts. This is 1800 BC. And God is going to use what is familiar to Abraham to teach Abraham something about himself. 
Just like today, God is going to use things that are familiar to us to teach us things about himself. If God was to come to us today and say, I want you to sacrifice your child, we would say that is craziness. But when God comes to Abraham with no written text, very little knowledge about God, even after following him for 35 years, all he knows is what he's experienced. And God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to offer your son as a sacrifice. In Abraham's mind, it makes sense. That's exactly what every one of the pagan gods in all the cultures around him asked people to do. Sacrificing a child in order to appease the gods was a very normal thing. And I know that sounds brutal to us and barbaric. But that's the culture in which Abraham is placed. And so while it sounds crazy to us that God would come to Abraham and say, I want you to give up your son. And the next day, Abraham gets up and packs everything up and gets ready to go and do this. In Abraham's mind, it's something that the gods do. But God's teaching Abraham something very important here very early on. Because the moment Abraham, Abraham is stopped by the angel of the Lord, the moment he raises that knife and God says, stop, Abraham learns something. His God is not like the other gods. His God is different. His God does not require child sacrifice. His God is not like the gods of the nations around him. And Abraham learns something about God. That God is different. And not only that God is different, but this God is the kind of God that provides the sacrifice. That he doesn't ask you to go out and find it. That he actually provides the sacrifice. And that Hebrew word, as I was reading, studying for this passage, that Hebrew word commentator said could easily be translated, God sees to it. So rather than God provides, it's like Abraham is saying, don't you worry, Isaac, God will see to it that we have a sacrifice. And then he names the place after he gets this ram in the thicket and sacrifices the ram instead of his son. He names the place God sees to it or God provides. And he learns something about God. That God's the one who provides the sacrifice. I don't know how much you know about the story of Job. That's a story I've referenced a couple times, but it's a story that takes place before even Abraham. And Job is the wealthiest man in the world, as I said, and he's just reduced to poverty. He loses his family. He gets sick. And there's this moment where he's just reduced to sitting on a pile of ashes covered in sores. There was a, a play written about the story of Job, and it's called J.B. by a playwright named Archibald McLeish. It won the Pulitzer Prize in the 50s. And about 30 years ago, I read that play. And there's a piece of that play that has stuck with me all these years. The play has the story of Job happening in the middle of the stage. And then way up on scaffolding behind the, the story are these two commentators on the story of Job. They're like those two old guys in the Muppets. You know what I'm talking about? 
And they watch Job take place on the stage in front of them and they comment back and forth, sometimes optimistic, sometimes pessimistic. And there's this one interaction when Job is reduced to ashes, sitting on that pile that I love. Nichols is one of the narrators and Nichols, he says this, he says, why test him if God knows? That's the question, right? Why test him if God knows that Job is going to come through. And Mr. Zuss, the other narrator says, so Job can see. And Nichols says, see what? And Mr. Zuss says, see God. And Nichols very sarcastically says, a fine sight from the ash heap, certainly. And Mr. Zuss says this, isn't there anything you understand? It's from the ash heap God has seen. Always. Always from the ashes. Every saint and martyr knew that. Listen, none of us wants a test in life. And you might be going through tests right now. And you might be wondering why. Why? What is the point? Especially if at the end, you know I'm going to fa be faithful. You know I'm going to trust you. You know I'm not going anywhere, God. Or for some of you, you're right on the edge of walking out the door and saying, that's it. Why does God let it happen? Why does he allow it to happen? You have that question, but here's what I know about this room. I have the privilege of, of knowing so many of you and I have the privilege of knowing your stories and what God has done in your life and what he's brought you through. And we've sat and we've talked through those things. And I've heard that how God has, has, put, has brought you out of places that you never wanted to be and you never thought you would be. And yet God has brought you out of them. And I promise when you look back at your life, it's in the middle of the test that you've learned the most about who God is. You and I wish we could learn it when life is good. But like the old Pentecostal tent revival preachers would say over and over again, how many of you know you've got to have a test in order to have a testimony? There's some truth in that statement. You will not know things about God, how awesome he is and how powerful he is and how much in control of your life he is and how he wants good things for you and how he is at work in, inside of you unless you walk through the challenging time. It's the only way to see God clearly. And Abraham walks off that mountain with his son. The son with whom the promised nation will come. And he comes down that mountain and he sees the two young men. And the two young men say something like, Abraham, how was the worship service on the top of the mountain? And Abraham said, I'll tell you this, I know God provides. Listen to me. God will see to it. He would have never known had he not been tested. And I wonder in your life right now, where you feel tested. See, there's the temptation to take matters in your own hands, but will you keep things in God's hands? Because if you will, your faith will be seen and you will see God like you've never seen him before. 
I'm going to invite our worship team to come up as we, as we move to the, to the closing uh, portion of our service today. And I'd like to invite you to take the elements of communion that you got uh, as you walked the door. And if you'd like to take communion with us as we close out our service today, uh, our ushers will be in the back with the basket. You could slip your hand up if you didn't get one on the way through the door and they'll give you the elements of communion. And we can take these together. If you're a follower of Jesus, even if Mount Hope isn't your home church, you're more than welcome to take communion with us this morning. On that mountain, Abraham learned something about God. God's the one who provides the sacrifice. And the same God who provided the sacrifice on the mountain has also provided a sacrifice for you and for me. Because of the times that I've given into temptation, because of the times that you've given into temptation, sacrifice needed to be made. Should have been us. But God provided the sacrifice. And on a Sunday like Palm Sunday and this whole week of, of what we call Passion Week and Good Friday service and Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday next week, we're remembering that God provided the sacrifice, that he stepped in. And rather than us paying the penalty, he did what we should have had to do. There are these ancient Jewish commentaries known as, as Midrash. In the Genesis Rabbach, a Midrash written centuries ago, says that Isaac carrying that wood on his back up the mountain it's just like a criminal condemned carrying his cross. And 1800 years later, where God stopped the sacrifice of Isaac, God sent his son, who with wood strapped to his back, climbed a hill. And God didn't stop the death. He let it happen. He provided the sacrifice for you and for me. And every time we partake of these elements together, we remember how God has provided, how he will provide. And we're strengthened to exercise our faith in the test because we know God is faithful. So I invite you, you can go ahead and open up the side of this that has the bread. Take that out. We remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the scripture tells us, 
He was eating a meal with his disciples and he took bread from the table and he said to them, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. Thank you, Lord. And then we read that he took the cup from the table after they were done eating. He said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. Every week we've been looking at Abraham's faith and asking what we learn. And this week we see that faith trusts God to see to the sacrifice. I don't know what test you're walking through this week. I don't know where you're at, but I promise you, if you're in the middle of the testing, if you're in the middle of that situation, that if you will remain faithful, you are going to see God work in ways that you would never see otherwise. You're going to learn things about God that you would never have otherwise known. And your faith will grow. God, we come before you today thanking you for your goodness to us. And God, honestly, I don't understand. I don't understand all the time why we have to walk through the trial, why we have to walk through the testing. But Lord, I know that you are faithful. We know that you are faithful. God, we know that you provide and thank you that you are the God who provides. Thank you for the sacrifice that you have provided of your son, Thank you for the relationship that we can have with you. With your eyes closed and your head bowed, just a couple of questions for you this morning. Are you trusting God in the test and leaving it in his hands? Or are you giving into temptation and taking it into your own? And are you trusting that God has provided the sacrifice through his son, Jesus Christ, to renew and reconcile and restore your heart and my heart in this world? It's the most important decision you could ever make. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for how you're at work among us. In Jesus' name.